sufficiency of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that in Christ we have our identity and in you that we live and move and have our being. Lord, we claim the promise of your word that from you and to you and through you and for you are all things. And we pray that this time together that we have this morning, gathered as your people around your word, we pray that this also would be from you and to you and through you and for you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for all that you've done. I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to fill each and every heart here. And we ask that you would do a work in our lives this morning that would cause us to bear fruit to our Father's glory. Thank you for this time that we get to spend together. It's precious to us and only because you are here with us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Amen. Well, turn to somebody that you don't know, your right or your left or behind you, and shake their hand. We'll also, fist bumps are also acceptable. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. That was good. Thanks, Alan. (laughs) If you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to John chapter 16. Uh, We're actually going to be looking at the last part of John chapter 15 as well, and then uh, the first half of of 16. But I'm going to start reading with the last two verses of John chapter 15, and then roll into 16. And we'll get going here. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks, will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? 
But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And I want you to jump over to verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Let's pray one more time. Father, just open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Expectations are extremely important. One of the things uh, that I do in... uh, when I meet with couples for pre-marriage counseling, and we've got a lot of weddings, by the way, coming up here, which is awesome, in May and June especially. Everybody is getting married in May and June. Um, and uh, so I've been doing some pre-marriage counseling, and one of the things that we go over in there is I just try to touch on two things in pre-marriage counseling. One is that I want them to understand the meaning or the purpose of marriage, which is to be a reflection or a picture of Christ in the church. And the second one is just some practical stuff on communicating expectations and communication because um, what we expect, our expectations really will define our experience, okay? So, I don't know, you had expectations coming in here this morning. Maybe you were expecting, uh, I don't know, me to come in from the balcony on a zip line or something like that. I mean, that would be a weird one (laughs) to be sure, but you know, sorry, (laughs) you're disappointed now that that didn't happen, or maybe you were expecting, you know, like a fog machine and some fireworks or something on stage, and your expectations were not met. We all have expectations all, all the time, and most of the frustration in our life comes from those expectations not being met. Not that the expectations are always wrong, but many times they aren't, uh, they're wrong expectations because we, uh, didn't get our expectations from the Word of God. And one of the things that Jesus is doing here in these final hours, this last conversation in the Upper Room Discourse in John 13 through 17, is one of the things that he's doing is he's setting expectations for his disciples. Okay, um, Four or more times in the passage, uh, going back to John chapter 13, he says, I am telling you this now, 
before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. John chapter 14, verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you will believe. I read one of them a little bit ago in John chapter 16, verse 4. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus is setting expectations. And there's, there's three um, kind of big idea expectations that I want to touch on this morning that I believe Jesus touches on in this passage to his disciples. And it's important that we understand it because, again, our expectations are going to define our experience as disciples of Jesus Christ. And if we don't have the expectations that Jesus wants us to have, then it can lead to a lot of, um, a lot of frustration and a lot of confusion in our lives as to why things are not going the way we think they should be going. Uh, but the three expectations that I want to talk about this morning that I think Jesus talks with his disciples about are this. One, that we should expect hatred from the world. Number two, that we should expect help from the Holy Spirit. And three, that we can know that though sorrow may last for a while, we will have hearts that are bursting with joy. Hatred from the world, help from the Holy Spirit, and hearts that burst with joy. So first of all, the first expectation that he wants to rightly set for us is that we will be hated by the world. Now go back to John chapter 15, verse 18, because this is the context for uh, everything else that we're going to talk about in regards to the Holy Spirit and also um, hearts that are filled with joy and the hope that we have in Christ. But the context here is one of hatred. John chapter 15, verse 18. I did not read this, but just listen. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things I have said to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated me and my father. Verse 25, they hated me without cause. As their law says, the world hates Jesus. And therefore, the world is going to hate people who remind them of Jesus. And if you remember what we talked about last week, is another expectation that Jesus gave us last week, although I didn't frame it as so much as an expectation last week, but we touched on it briefly, is that as his disciples, we are to be fruitful. Remember what fruit is. Fruit are attitudes and actions done by the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father that make us look like Jesus. And if the world hated Jesus and we're bearing fruit and so we are to look like Jesus, then we should expect that the world is going to hate us. Now, there's um, actually much debate among scholars and theologians about what John means when he uses, when he uses the word world, because he uses it often uh, throughout his gospel. So John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And what he's speaking of here when he, when he speaks of the, that the world is going to hate us, he's talking about the world system 
And in John's gospel and also in his um, epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he, he speaks of this world system and how is it, it is hostile. It is hostile to, to the things of God. And so the world is going to hate us because it hates Jesus first, he says. Um, it also is going to hate us because they hate the Father, because they don't know the Father. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. It is only the love of the Father, father sorry, that changes someone's heart. Um, the world hates Jesus in the same way that darkness hates light. And if you've been reading the entirety of John's gospel, this is one of the themes or motifs that runs throughout John's gospel. In fact, from the very beginning, John chapter 1, the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Again, right after John 3.16, that well-known verse, verse 17 in John chapter 3 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light came into the world, that's Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. They hate the light because they are darkness. And we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, were one time darkness. But God has done a miracle in our hearts, for all of those that know Jesus Christ as our Savior, where he spoke into the darkness, just like he did at the beginning of creation. And he said, let there be light. It's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says that God has spoken into the darkness to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Darkness is opposed to light. They cannot be mingled together. Um, Paul talks about this also in Corinthians in his letters about not being unequally yoked together. What fellowship have light and darkness together? And the reason I'm, I'm saying all this and pointing this out and that Jesus is saying this and again giving this clear expectation that we are to be hated by the world, I think there's a couple of very practical implications. If I could just touch on a few briefly. Number one is that, just very practically speaking, folks, you cannot live for the applause of the world. You, you, you cannot do it. I, I, look, I'll be the first to admit, and I would hope that we would all admit, that every single one of us loves the praise of people. We love when people applaud us. We love when people say, good job, and pat us on the back. And of course, that's not a bad thing, and we should be encouraging one another. But if our identity is not rooted and grounded in Christ, we will look for that identity somewhere else. And if we're looking from, for that identity from the world, we're being enemies of God. John, again, in his epistle, 1 John chapter 2, he says, 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. Paul in Galatians chapter 1. He said, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that he received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul makes it very clear that we cannot be servants, disciples of Christ, disciples who bear fruit to the Father's glory and seek to please men. And because we do the will of the Father, or we are to do the will of the Father above all because our allegiance is to lie there, first and foremost, the world will hate us. We cannot live for the applause of the world. Secondly, the second reason this matters is that we should not be surprised by difficulty, and more specifically, we should not be surprised by real evil in the world. We, God is sovereign over the times and places in which we live and move and have our being. Meaning God is sovereign over the family you were born into and where you grew and where you grew up and the school that you went to and who your friends were and, and you know, our, our, our context here in America. So we don't, need to, we don't need to apologize for it or feel bad about it. it. God is sovereign. He's the one that has placed us here in the little Amish country theater on this date today. Um, and he has us where he has us. However, one of the things to be aware of, and I think we'd all agree, in our context is that we have grown up in a safe little environment. You know, I've used that, that language from the Lord of the Rings before. It's like Holmes County is like the Shire. And we all, like happy little hobbits, just go around, you know, seeking to have a good time and eat, drink, and be merry. And again, I don't think we have to apologize for it, but we do need to understand there's a lot going on outside the Shire. And the Shire will not remain unaffected forever. And although we can be thankful that we have grown up in times of relative peace compared to many places in the world, uh, we do need to very much understand that we cannot just close our eyes and pretend like evil does not exist and just wish that everything was a teddy bear rainbow world. Because it's not. And if you think that it is just a teddy bear, unicorn, rainbow world where everything is just happy, sparkles and stars all the time, you're going to have some unmet expectations. And it's going to lead to some frustration and to some confusion. In fact, you know, a lot has been written about how most kids that grow up in the church, and you know, these statistics get thrown around all the time. I don't really know. I don't really trust a whole lot of statistics. But anyway, you know, like 70, 80% of them are going off to college and then walking away from their faith. Um, I mean, I, I think when that happens, it's usually because it, it, it's people that have, I don't even know if they're ever truly disciples of Jesus Christ to begin with. Or at the very least, they were disciples that did not understand the expectations that Jesus gave. Is that there is real evil in the world. And 
all of the apostles were martyred. They were killed for their faith, except for maybe the apostle John, but history tells us that there's a good chance he was boiled alive in oil, but he didn't die. Then he was exiled to Patmos, so I'm not sure if that was a win or not. I think I'd choose death. But it's very real. And so we can't be surprised by real evil and real hatred in people's hearts. Third implication, please don't use this passage and others like it to make excuses for just being a jerk. If I can just say that. Sometimes people are like, ah, people don't like me because I'm a Christian suffering for the gospel. No, you're just kind of mean. That's why people don't like you. And you tend to say a lot of offensive things. I'm just suffering for the gospel. No, that's, I don't think that you are. I think you just need to be careful with your words. Fourthly, and probably most importantly, and we'll roll in here again out of this context of the hatred from the world into the help of the Holy Spirit. But do not allow their hatred to fill your heart. Do not allow their hatred to fill your heart. Again, all this darkness, all the hatred, all evil, it is ultimately from Satan, who Jesus is going to go on and talk about here in this passage. We'll talk about it a little bit. But do not allow their hatred to fill your heart. It's the dangerous thing about hatred. Is you try to engage it, and if you don't engage it the right way, in the power of the Holy Spirit, with the Lord's help, it gets on you. It's like something sticky, and you just can't get it off of you. And you try, but then all of a sudden you're rubbing it all over you. And you're covered in it. Do not allow their hatred to fill your heart. And so I, I said all that because it's important that we understand the context into which Jesus is now speaking about the Holy Spirit. Because there's been so much misinformation and wrong teaching about the Holy Spirit. And many times, again, usually when we get off on something or something, a doctrine gets a little bit skewed or twisted, it's because many times we've pulled things out of their context. And again, Jesus has been speaking about the Holy Spirit here throughout this passage. And, and uh, you know, he is the active agent of the Trinity in whom that lives in us that helps us to abide in Christ and in his, his love, but it's in this context of, be, context of being hated by the world that we see the specific ways in which the Holy Spirit helps. And so he helps us in three ways. One, uh, he has, uh, there, there's a keeping work where he, where he keeps us effective in our witness. So again, roll back into the context and watch the flow of thought here, verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Verse 26, but. So there's hatred happening, but when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing. In everything that Jesus is going to say, and has said about the Holy Spirit. You need to think about this rightly. Like it is true that the Holy Spirit is, um, is in the world and he is doing things to draw people to himself, but in the context of what Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit in the upper room discourse and especially here in this passage, it is that the Holy Spirit is in us. He's in us and he's doing his work through, in the world through us. 
through his people, okay? Um, you, you'll see this in every one of these passages, but again, verse 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you. Who's he coming to? He's coming to those who have trusted in Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives in those who have been born again, who have trusted in Christ for their salvation. And I say that it's a keeping work here because in the midst of this hatred, and again, fighting it correctly to make sure that the hatred, that their hatred does not get into our hearts, is that we have to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way that he's going to help us stand against this hatred is to continue to be bold in our witness, even though they hate us, to be bold in our witness both with our words and our actions, which means the way that we love them despite the way that they hate us. Okay? And so he goes on here, and he says, chapter 16, verse 1, and again, it's a kind of a bad chapter break here. The chapter and verses weren't you know, in the original writing. It's all one flow of thought. The Holy Spirit will bear witness about me. You will bear witness about me. And he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So God's word keeps us. And one of the things that he's been adamant about as he talks about the Holy Spirit is that he is the spirit of truth. He says this over and over again. And he keeps talking about how when, even though he's going to go, the spirit of truth, the helper, is going to remind us of all that Jesus said. And so Jesus keeps us in his word, but the Holy Spirit as well helps to keep us in God's word in order to keep us in his love and not in hatred. And notice what Jesus says here. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Verse two, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. The hour is coming when whoever kills you, not just doesn't like you or says something mean about you or criticizes you or doesn't like your Facebook post or leaves a critical comment later on, they will kill you. And even though Jesus says this, that the world will hate us so much that they will kill us, notice that his emphasis here is not on keeping us from death but on keeping us from falling away this is really important in defining our expectations this is, this is kind of a weird uh, kind of a funny illustration but uh, a couple years ago he still does it but Finn like all, all our boys can be a little bit goofy Finn is probably just the natural goofiest he's the 11 year old he's just happy-go-lucky all the time. And he, would, he always would have this little thing that he'd do. He, he'd come up and he'd say, Dad, would you rather, and he had these would you rather questions, and they were always totally like off the wall, like, would you rather be attacked by a grizzly bear or an alligator? And I'm like, neither one, neither, neither one. Would you rather eat this, and it was something disgusting, or this, something else, some, some, something, and I was like, I need, need, neither one. And Again, as disciples of Jesus Christ, would you rather die or commit apostasy? Meaning falling away, rejecting, denying your faith. That's the word here when he says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. It's the Greek word scandalizo. It's where we get our English word scandal from. 
Jesus is more concerned in keeping us from falling away than he is with keeping us from death. Um, Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that can do nothing more to you. But to fear him, God, to, to, to fear the one who, after you've died physically, can throw you into hell. Jesus wants us to be concerned with bearing witness in the power of the Holy Spirit to the very end. And in that way, keep us in his love and not let the hatred of the world pull us away from him. Not only does the Holy Spirit help us by keeping us, but he helps us by convicting the world. He goes on here. He'll jump to verse 5. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. And again, this would have been completely mind-blowing to the disciples at this time. Jesus has been telling them that he's going to the Father. They're confused. They don't fully get it. They don't fully understand what he's talking about, but they know that something's happening and they don't, they don't like it. But he says here that it is to their advantage that he goes away. He says, for if I do not go away, again, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And here's another thing that he will do. Verse eight, and when he comes, he will convict he will convict. The Holy Spirit helps to keep us bold in our witness. He also helps to convict the world of sin. But again, not just them, or, or I'm sorry, not just on his own, but to convict the world in us and through us. Through the way that we live and the message that we proclaim. This word convict, it's a, it's a very strong legal word. It, it's kind of the idea of pronouncing uh, a judgment or a, or, a, or a conviction or of a prosecution in some way. It's used in other places um, in the Bible uh, to speak of the also work that we're to do. So for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, it says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And that word for expose is the same word uh, that is used here for convict or to prosecute. He says, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed, he uses it again in Ephesians 5, by the light, it becomes visible. Um, John the Baptist, uh, before he was arrested and beheaded, he uh, convicted Herod for living in an immoral relationship, um, committing adultery with his brother's wife. And it says in Luke chapter 3, but Herod the Tetrarch had been reproved. It's the same word here, convicted, prosecuted by John the Baptist for taking his brother's wife. Is that this is a work that the Holy Spirit does, but that he does in us and through us to the world. And this is a part of our witness. Guys, we, we have to have a grid for being effective disciples of Jesus Christ that there are going to be times when they hate us, we have to love them in return, yet at the same time speak the truth in love and not water down the message. One of the, again, one, I, I was born in 1981. Depending on what kind of studies you listen to, I was like the last year of Generation X or the first year of the Millennials. I don't like to admit that. I'm not a Millennial. Um, but uh, maybe. But uh, right there, okay? 
it, it was basically my whole life, okay, and I didn't know this, uh, you know, growing up, obviously, until, but now looking back on it, on this, this, this span of the last 40 years of history, okay, especially, especially church history, is we've been living in this, as you zoom out and look at church history as a whole throughout time, we live in a time and space that is an anomaly. Like, it, it's a weird, it's just a weird thing. It's not normal in the scope of church history. And, and what it is is this, is that, is that the church by and large, and I'm painting, I'm painting with broad brush strokes now, has believed over the course of my life, primarily in the 80s is when it really began to boom, with the seeker-sensitive um, uh, church movement where we think that if we can just get the world to like us and say that we're cool, then they'll believe in Jesus. That is not how it works. Now again, what I'm not calling for is just going out and just being a jerk or being rough around the edges and just, you know, and being offensive. No, no, no. We're to love people well. But the church, by and large, has believed a lie that if we can somehow be like the world and show them that we're cool and that we're not that much different than them, then they'll somehow just kind of get grafted in and along the way, real quick, just say Jesus and you're saved. That, that's not it. We were all darkness, Ephesians chapter 2. We were by nature objects of wrath. And a person only comes into the kingdom of God through a miracle and the power of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. That's the only way it happens. Now that doesn't have to happen in a church service. That doesn't happen from a pulpit. That can happen in the midst of, of, of loving, kind conversations and ongoing dialogue. That can absolutely happen. But it's not something where you cannot be saved apart from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That, that's not a thing. But we've literally made it a thing. But it's not a thing. And, and he says here, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he unpacks those three things. Well, what do you mean, sin, righteousness, and judgment? Well, take them one at a time. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Now, people are not guilty just because they don't believe in Jesus. They are guilty. Sin is breaking God's law. All of humanity is born guilty. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are sinners by both nature and choice. I love all the little babies we got running around here. One of the things you'll notice about little, the, the little babies is you will not have to teach them to say, mine, or to bite, or to hit. Why? Because they're little sinners. As cute as they are. They are, we are sinners by nature and then by choice. We also choose it. Now he says here concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, the answer for our sin is Jesus. The answer for our darkness is his light. But he came and we rejected it. So he says concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, they do not, we do not believe naturally, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, Believe in the one who came to save us from this darkness. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. What's he speaking of here? He's speaking of the resurrection. Now remember, there is, what's going to happen here in the Gospel of John and all the Gospels 
is that Jesus is going to be convicted by an earthly court. They're going to say guilty, even though he hasn't done anything wrong. The earthly courts are going to declare him guilty and thus declare themselves unrighteous, unjust courts. But that's what's going to happen. But the resurrection is the testimony of God that though the world says Jesus deserved to die, God says he will not die because he is innocent and I will raise him from the dead. The resurrection is the testimony of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And throughout history, the world in its darkness has tried to suppress the light, suppress the truth. But as I already said, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. And the resurrection from the dead is the testimony of God that his son came and lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life and is the answer for our sin. This has always been throughout history. If I could Psalm 2 <coughs> very quickly, it's prophetically speaking of this. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's speaking primarily of, uh, of the, the religious rulers and Pilate and Herod and all these people. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's Jesus. Saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords. In other words, we will not be ruled by you, Jesus, though you proclaim to be God. We will have no Lord and Savior but ourselves. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs at what they're saying. And he says, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will, terrify, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy, my holy hill. In other words, I'm going to raise him from the dead. You can plot against him. You can scheme. You can even kill him to deny his lordship over your life, but that will not stop me from raising him from the dead and declaring him to be your Lord and King. And one day, every single knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it would be wise to bow now willingly rather than waiting for that day. And the Holy Spirit lives just like Jesus came to do the will of the Father and to testify to the world of what the Father is like. Now the Holy Spirit lives in us, in his people, to testify to the world who Jesus was. The Holy Spirit wants to exalt Jesus. And so he testifies concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and then concerning judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. Again, Paul, um, John doesn't mention him a lot specifically, just a couple times, but throughout John's gospel, there's kind of this invisible hand of Satan that is at work to bring about darkness, to deceive Judas so that he will betray his Lord and Master. But Jesus says here, that the ruler of this world, in other words, the darkness ha- already has a king. The, dark, the kingdom of darkness has a king, and that is Satan. But Jesus is judging the king of the darkness, and so that kingdom is going to fall, and everyone who wants to identify with that kingdom will fall along with him if they do not turn and believe in Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit was given to do, to keep us bold in our witness and to help us convict the world of sin through the proclamation of the gospel and real conviction of the Holy Spirit. Third, another way the Holy Spirit helps us very quickly 
is he, there's, a, there's a counseling and clarifying work that the Holy Spirit does for us. Verse 13, actually go verse 12. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So when the Spirit of truth comes, it says he will guide you into all truth. He said this earlier in other chapters that he's going to bring to remembrance all that Jesus said. There's a couple of different things going on here. Um, just for the sake of uh, kind of learning and understanding, I try to teach right, I don't know, biblical theological terms when it comes up. But there's a couple things going on. Number one, with the apostles, there's, I believe there's a direct promise for them being taught more by the Holy Spirit uh, in, in getting more what you would call revelation. Revelation, okay? That they were going to get revelation, and, and it was mainly the apostles that were going to write the majority of the New Testament. All right? And so they would get revelation from the Holy Spirit, okay? And they would write inspired words of Scripture. Um, sometimes people... And the reason I'm pointing this out, I want to give a differentiation between the term revelation and illumination. Um, sometimes people, when they're reading the Bible or something, they'll read something, they'll, they'll see something new, and that's, that, that, that's a real thing. Sometimes the Holy Spirit shows you things that you haven't seen there before. And they'll say, oh man, I got revelation on this. And I'm not trying to um, just play semantics here, or just pick on people's words, because I know what they mean, and it's not, it's not wrong. I th I'm sure we've all said that at times. But it, revelation is not the correct term. Rev technically speaking, revelation is what the apostles got. The, revel the book of Revelation is now closed. Okay? Revelation is tied to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That does not happen anymore. Okay? But what does happen for us, what we experience in the power of the Holy Spirit, is illumination. Is that all that has been revealed, the revelation, is in this book. Now, what we experience by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's why, and it's very, it's very real, it's why, especially if you call Mercy Hill home, almost every single week after I read the passage, I pray this prayer out of Psalm 119. Open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things from your word. What am I praying for? I am praying for the illumination of the Holy Spirit upon the scriptures, that we would see it, that we would understand it, and that we would be able to, to believe it and walk in it, if that makes sense. So the apostles were going to experience this promise in terms of revelation of God continuing to speak, writing down what we now have in the inspired scriptures. We experience it in terms of illumination. But he says he's going to guide us into all the truth. That's why, folks, we, you know, we, we study the Bible intensely, <laughs> We want to we wanna meditate upon it. We want to read it through. We want to break it down. We want to outline it. We want to get into the, to the weeds. Like We just want to get in this book. But in the end, it is not just an academic exercise. It's why you cannot just equate classroom knowledge to spiritual knowledge. Classroom knowledge, academic knowledge is part of it. We have to understand what's here and what it says. But it is the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand it and to see Jesus in it and to cause us to love him more. And I say all that very practically because you don't have to like try to work something up or make something happen. But every time you open this book, you do it prayerfully. 
asking that the Holy Spirit would help you to see Jesus. So the world hates us, but the Holy Spirit is going to help us. He's going to help keep us. He's going to help convict the world through us, and he, he will help counsel us and clarify what he wants to teach us, the truth of his word going forward. Finally, the last expectation that we can have, I believe, is and there are more, but in this passage anyway, the last expectation that we should have is that we should know that eventually we will have hearts that are filled with joy. Hearts that are filled with joy. Verse 16, he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me again. And he's talking about this on a couple different levels. Earlier in the passage, he talked about um, he is going to him who sent me. And that's speaking, of course, of his ascension after his, after his resurrection. He's going to come by the Holy Spirit. Here, though, he's also speaking of it um, in terms of he's going to die and go away, but then he's going to rise again, and they're going to see him after his resurrection. The disciples are confused by this. Verse 19, Jesus says, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him this, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrow, but, sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Okay, And here's the principle and then kind of the picture. The principle is this, is that generally speaking for disciples of Jesus Christ, and this is why it's important that we understand this for, so that we have right expectations, is that Usually, the disciple's joy is always going to be preceded by sorrow. The disciple's joy, true joy in the Lord, satisfaction in him, it is going to be preceded by sorrow, meaning that sorrow is going to come first. That's the principle, and now he gives the picture. Verse 21, it's of a woman giving birth. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now, obviously there's a direct um, application to the apostles as they were literally there with Jesus the night that he was betrayed. In just a few hours, he was going to be arrested, eventually crucified, dead for three days, and then eventually going to rise again. And that, that joy that they're going to have in his resurrection is obviously part of this. However, there's a bigger picture here, not just for us, but also for them in a different way and for us as well, is that in this world, we are going to have trouble. Not just because the world hates us, as we've already talked about, but also just because of our own sin at times, because of our own struggle with it. And again, if you're not struggling with sin, then I don't think you're following Jesus. Because if you're seeking to follow him, you will have a fight, a battle against sin. But always, in all of it, no matter what is causing sorrow, it's not just random. It's not for no purpose. It is that God 
is wanting to birth something in us to his honor and to his, and to his glory. There is a, and it happens in little areas. I mean, if you've ever had somebody that you know and love that's been far from the Lord, and if you, and if you know what it means to, to intercede for them and to get up in the middle of the night because your heart is burdened for them and you pray for them and you're crying for them and you still, and you don't, but you don't see any change, and then one day it happens, whew, there's an unbelievable joy that's happened on the backside of that, of that sorrow. So it happens in little kind of many uh, times in our life, I guess, but also on the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that all of life in this life is filled with sorrow. But there is a day coming. It is our great hope when we will die and be with him forever, but then also that one day when Jesus returns. And folks, we cannot forget that our ultimate joy, our ultimate hope is in glory with Jesus. Listen to the reality of the Apostle Paul and the way he speaks in Romans chapter 8. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been what? Groaning together in the pains of childbirth. The same thing that Jesus says here, until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, even though the Spirit of God lives in us, there is still a reality, an expectation that we should have. Do not be surprised by it when you groan. He says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And in this hope, we are saved is that we have to rightly understand this. That though sorrow lasts for the night, there is joy coming with the morning. Worship team, you can come up, and we'll begin to close. And Dorothy, if you can put that picture up on the screen for me. This is extremely random, but James Miller, who I don't think is here this morning, I think he, he's over in Maryland or something like that, Virginia, visiting his sister. Yesterday morning, I was sitting at the kitchen table sipping my coffee, and I guess he just wanted to make me depressed. And he, he sent me this picture of the snow, and he's like, it's beginning, and he just said, dot, 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 it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And I was like, why are you sending me this? Like, I didn't, you know. Um, and, because, uh, you know, I want the snow to be done. <laughs> and what I just instinctively did, I was like, oh, good grief. And I pulled up my phone, and without even thinking, I just pulled up my little dark sky app and I, uh, and I looked at the forecast for the week in response to this because I needed some good news <laughs> in response to this bad news that was a, present, was a present reality. And guys, it's so important for us to understand 
that the darkness, just like the snow and the cold this time of year, it's, it wants to cling on. It wants to stick around. It wants to get you to believe that it's going to win the day and that it's never going to leave. But it's a lie. And if you will just look at the forecast, what Jesus says in his word, that though sorrow lasts for the night, there is joy coming in the morning. And even the sorrow that we experience now, it, it, it's, it's not meaningless. It has a purpose. And if you are in Christ, that he is working all things together for good in your life. And what he's doing is not just punishing you or just chastising you, although at times we experience the Lord's discipline as his sons and as his daughters, but what he is doing is he is birthing something in you and in us. And the whole way along the journey, even when there's those snowy days slash dark days (laughs) where things are difficult, we can know that the Holy Spirit is with us and that he's there to help us. Would you just bow your heads with me for just a second? I just want to give just, just a minute for just to just examine your own heart, just to be still for a second. And I just want to ask you, in regards to the expectations that we saw Christ lay out, for the 12 apostles, as well as for us as his disciples. Do your expectations align with those of Christ? Are you trying to avoid hatred? Are you trying to avoid persecution? Are you trying to avoid being unliked at all costs to the place where it's it's not obedience to Jesus? It's just part of the deal, guys. Not everybody's going to like us. And many will even hate us. If you are experiencing that, are you trying to go forward and to stand strong in it apart from the help of the Holy Spirit? Are you trying to do it in your own strength? Are you trying to do it with self-help and with the help of others? And there's nothing wrong with having people come around you and help you. I mean, we're, we're, we're for that. But are you looking to the Holy Spirit first? in all the ways that he wants to keep you in God's word and keep you in his love? Are you just confused about the pain this morning? Why, God, why is this happening? Why has this happened? Why does this not go away? I just want to submit to you in love. Hopefully you see, not from me, but on the authority of God's word, that maybe that pain is God wanting to birth something in you. And I understand that it hurts right now. But joy is just around the corner. So Father, please just help us. Please help us to trust you. Please help us to align our expectations with what your word clearly teaches. Be glorified in us, especially as we come to your table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys.